Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast. Our show is brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization that focuses on improving our ocean's health and stability. Today's host, as always, is Richard Hyman. Our special guest is Suda Calling Last, who has spent her life fighting for environmental reform and social change. Her career has focused both on how we treat our waterways as well as how we treat our indigenous communities, and she works hard to create change through conversation. If you'd like to see more episodes like this, you can find the show wherever you get your podcasts and at futurefrogman.org, which is full of other content about our oceans. Check us out on pretty much every social media platform at Future Frogman. Enjoy the show, and remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Let's get into it. So, delighted today to have Suta calling last with us. I wanted to speak with Suta because of her passion for cultural preservation, environmental justice, and social justice. She has worked specifically on water resources, but also so much more. I heard Suta at Fairfield University in Connecticut last October of 2019. She was on a panel and spoke on the panel about ethics here and now, racial justice, reproductive justice, and climate justice, which we will get into. Suta lives in Montana and is joining us from Montana. She's a member of the Blood Tribe and the Blackfeet Tribe, both part of the Blackfoot Confederacy. She's founder and executive director of Indigenous Vision, which we'll also hear about. Suta is also on the board of Interfaith Power and Light, assisting them with deepening the connection between ecology and culture, a spiritual response to climate change. So Suta, welcome. And uh, you are in Montana now as we speak, correct? I am. I am. And, and how life changes over one, one year. And what else? Let's see. So the the tribes, so tribes, tribal affiliation is actually a really big topic in um, Indian country right now. Um, it's kind. We're kind of having a. I don't know what would they call it. Like the what, what's the lingo? The cleaning of the swamp, <laughs> draining uh, of the swamp. Yeah, correct. Um, so they're kind of doing like a industry check where, you know, a professor ha- like. Any professional or professor or uh, person who is an expert um, claiming tribal affiliation needs to be able to prove their tribal affiliation. And it turns out um, right now, the way the world is going with everything changing the way it is, it's all of the people who, and some of them are really stunning, like people who had been working for 20 years have uh, and claiming uh, tribal enrollment have no affiliation with the tribe. And, and some of them are doing really good work, but I think where that goes into ethics and justice studies is that um, if there is a native person who can do it, we should make space for the native person who can do it. Um, but yes, I appreciate like being able to talk about that for just two minutes. <laughs> Of course. You know, I'm reminded of my freshman year of college. I took uh, a course on Native American history, and it was the best course I had that year, probably the best course I had in my undergraduate education, frankly. Uh, and I'm I'm out of date and not as up to speed as I would like to be, but I, I think it's a, a fascinating uh, uh, history uh, and I actually, uh, the, the, the Blackfeet, uh, Blackfoot Confederacy, I remember driving a truck up to, uh, up through Montana, uh, and, uh, into Canada and, uh, uh learned uh, a bit about the, the Blackfoot, uh, when we were there. In fact, c- can you explain how, uh, you would be a member of, of two tribes? How does that work? Yes. So, um, federally, uh, federal laws say that you can only be a member of one tribe. Um, our tribe was separated by the U S Canadian border. And so we're under Canadian, the crown, um, and the U S federal government and, um, the Canadian relatives, which I'm enrolled in the blood tribe of the Blackfeet Confederacy, but I grew up in the Blackfeet reservation. My mom is Blackfeet. And so I would be just considered a descendant, um, even though my mom's a member and I grew up on the reservation here in Montana. 
And, um, but I kind of went back and forth because my parents uh, split up when I was about four. And that's when I started traveling in between the two homes, which are only about 45 minutes apart. Um, I think you'll remember if it's, it's a, it's a big open land, but um, I think most people here are really used to driving two hours to get anything done. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but, but being a member of two tribes, I'm really lucky. I like to say I'm, I'm Blackfeet and blood, but all Blackfoot, right. <laughs> like the traditional old school intermarriage uh, Blackfoot. Uh-huh. So um, your name, Suta Calling Last, can you tell us what that means? Yeah, Sutaki Sakobahkomi. It means rain woman. Um, and that was my my birth name. Uh, my grandpa and my mom got together on that one. And um, I was born in late June in Montana here. That's the, the stormy, lightning, rainy season. And um, so naturally, they said that made me rain woman. And um, I had no idea that I'd have a career in water at the time or, or even want to be a, uh, my backup career if I ever um, can is to be a meteorologist for the mm-hmm. news station. <laughs> and I thought it'd be cute to be, hello, I'm rain woman. And today we're having no rain. Sakobahkomi <laughs> <laughs> uh, is um, my inherited name, my, my given name, I guess you would say. Calling last is what it's loosely translated into. Um, what it's actually translated into is last one standing on the battlefield making a war cry. And so I think when they were doing the census rolls in the late 1800s, that was too lengthy and it was too warlike. And we're luckily one of the tribes that um, they let keep um, our names. Uh, so down in the Southwest, they gave them Smith, Jones, Johnson, um, you know, very normal names. And, and here they let us keep them. Um, instead of last war cry or last one standing on the battlefield, making the war cry, it just became calling last. Hmm. Well, it's, it, I think it's beautiful how the, uh, a beautiful translation and, uh, and, and very ironic too, in, in that your passion is water and, uh, it's, it's really a nice story. So, Another nice story that really touched me when I heard you at, at Fairfield U was uh, when you shared as a, as a young girl your mystical experience. Uh, uh, can you talk about that? Uh, I, I, I think it started uh, uh, when you were, I think at uh, Fairfield you talked about uh, at age five. You were, uh, anyway, I'll let you uh, tell us that story if you could. Yes, yes. Um, So I had been raised in as much of a traditional family as we can have tradition right now, right? The Blackfoot tradition. So weekend ceremonies, weeknight ceremonies, all night smokes, um, sweat lodges, um, sun dances. So I grew up in a like a fairly like modern traditional lifestyle um, because you can't be super traditional. You could be as traditional as you can be. Right. And um, I, I, my mom's best friend was a Methodist pastor and she um, would sometimes call us to church on Sundays because she would not have anyone show up from her congregation. And so my mom being her best friend would would get us all out of bed on Sunday morning and drag us over. And, and we would sit there and be polite, you know, a main value in teaching of being traditional is having respect for all people, no matter what they believe in. And, and uh, even if it's not our way. Um, and I think that might've been to the demise of many native people, right. Is, is that we're not like other groups in that we um, want to dominate with our ways and our way only if you have a way we're accepting of it and you can do that but that might have that might have hurt like 150 years ago where we weren't adamant about what we believed in and and maintained it and um so my mom and her best friend had got together um and they they were talking about me and this anger that I was feeling at the time and and this sorrow that I was feeling at the time because I had just discovered that on the way to my grandma's house was a, a 
a mass grave of people from the 1883 starvation winter event. Uh, There's nearly 700 people in a mass grave there. um, And that was a big political mess. The Indian agent had the food, but was just not a nice person. (laughs) So he he hoarded it. And then um, by the time he did give it out, everybody had starved and there were people dying. And luckily, 1883 was the year that my my great grandma was born. So she amazingly survived. We had a smallpox outbreak that year and starvation winter. Somehow I'm sitting here visiting with you. Um, We survived. And uh, I just, I had, I had come across all this information when I was five and I, I didn't, it was, it's so much different than what other five-year-olds get of how the world works and where you fit in and you could be anything you want. And Um, To me, it was a very different conversation. I saw how the government was treating us. I saw how people in border towns reacted to us and treated us. And I just, um, right about the same time, my my grandma was taking me into a salon to have my first trim. And and, uh, the lady had told her that we don't cut her kind of hair. And my grandma was like, what are you talking about? Her hair is my hair. Don't you know I'm native too? And my grandma was could be white passing because um, by then she was gray haired and uh, I guess we lighten up with a little bit of age and not the summertime. <laughs> uh, but uh, I had just been pummeled by all of this real world information that was just chocked full of trauma. And I was angry at the world. I was angry at white people. I was angry at Indian people. I was angry that no group of warriors had taken our people and and like walked back into the Bob Marshall wilderness and just saved us. Um, and so they they started sending me to this camp. <laughs> um, and at the camp, I I um, had a dream. And traditionally, our people are led by when we need information or when we need like higher conscious and guidance, we go on a vision quest is like the, the current term, but we, we, we seek and we wait for our dream to guide us. And by nine, I had had that dream and it took place at the church camp that, that I went to. And um, I was not a very good camper. I was kind of a loner. I didn't fit in. I didn't know the Jesus songs and (laughs) I um, loved campfire time. I loved the stories, uh, but I didn't know how to sing the songs and I tried and I'm a singer. And, and so I loved when the words are written down on the paper and, and can join in. Um, but I just was not feeling like I was feeling out of place. And then at the same time, I was trying to contemplate, well, here I am in a church camp and behind the, the other church is a mass grave of kids and all of this. So I was really trying to contemplate a lot. And this um, dream came. And that's where the whole course of my life just changed. And I was uh, laying on the dock. Do we have do we have five minutes for this? <laughs> of course, absolutely. I was laying on the dock, uh, floating dock out in Flathead Lake, Montana. It's one of the largest freshwater lakes in in the Western United States. I think the other bigger one might be Lake Tahoe. Um, so there's Flathead Lake and then Lake Tahoe. Um, but I was laying about 40 feet on my belly, kind of looking at the water ripple, and it was dark, and there was no moon, and the stars were sprinkling or sparkling so bright on the top of the lake that I... I had a hard time discerning where the stars ended in the sky and where they started on the lake. And then just as I started to feel like a fear well up in me about, oh my God, I have to swim back at nine years old. I didn't know how to swim. Um, so I had to swim back to the shore and, um, and then from the silence was broken. And from behind me, an uh, older man's voice in a language that I uh, didn't understand or I, I didn't yeah, I didn't understand the language. I had never heard the language before, but I understood what he was saying. And um, I turned around and there's three people sitting uh, cross-legged uh, or what they would say Indian style cross-legged on the water. And um, 
there was a woman, a, a middle-aged woman, I guess she would be my age now, um, although I'm not quite middle-aged, and then a young man and an older man in the middle. And the older man told me, uh, he called me granddaughter, and um, the other two were silent. And he said, you need to be careful about where you're going. Um, we can travel anywhere in the world to protect you. And we can go wherever you go. All of the water is connected, essentially. And uh, we can be there for you. But it's getting harder. We're getting slower. Um, we need more. Uh, well, there was a lot of like, sub-communication which I felt like might have been transferred a different way besides the guy talking but but the water was getting darker he said and it's getting harder for them to travel and um and then that promise of them being anywhere where I was in the world to protect me um as Sawita Peaks and Sawita Peaks are what we call water people and um and they can be fish otter beaver or actual humanoid looking people like us like mermaids <laughs> um but we call them water people and uh i woke up that next morning and i was nine and my face was covered with tears and as i was wiping the tears and i i realized the significance of the dream um that i had that like that was that was it that was my communication i I woke up with such a profound feeling of, of gratefulness that I, I vowed from that moment on to do whatever I could with my life and the time I had here to make water lighter. I have no idea like what dark water is, but make water lighter wherever I go. And um, from then on, I, I just um, started doing everything I could. I've, I've uh, started cleaning trash out of Whitetail Creek in Hartview, Montana. That's, that's the town I grew up in. Um, and then I went to college, became a water resource professional. I've, I've done, uh, I, I do a lot of stream shore cleanups, lake shore cleanups. I just feel like that's the easiest thing to do. But then I got into um, mining contamination and heavy metal contamination. Um, hazardous waste, uh, discharge pipes, uh, pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical uptakes of medicinal plants. And, and then I transitioned careers into the drinking water field. Um, I started looking at the additives that we put in our water treatment process. I started looking at what we're not taking out of our water treatment process, like the pharmaceuticals. Um, right now, there's no I don't think there is one water treatment plant in the U.S. that removes pharmaceuticals, but there is not one lake in the world where we don't get a trace test of birth control, steroids, antidepressants, and uh, an opioid. So if you think about how that's affecting our frogs, how that's affecting our fish, and how that's affecting our children, um, and I don't think very many people uh, know about um, the community of Sarnia, it's a First Nation community in Canada. And I want to say, I always get my lakes mixed up. It's on Lake Ontario. Uh, they, and it, it's, it's located in an industrial chemical valley of like Detroit, um, Chicago, all of those, those cities are right there on the same lake, same shore pumping in all of these industrial chemicals. And back in the early 90s, they started to notice that they had less boys. And so they started looking into it and um, women would be in utero, congratulations, you're having a boy. And then they would have a girl. And so what they found is that women, fish, frogs, and every other mammal was having in utero chromosomal shifts. Um, this is, is not talked about very often. I have no idea why, because I think of the immense amount of cleanup that it's going to take, because it's not even something that is considered Superfund yet. Even though Superfund is broke at this point, it's not considered a massive cleanup scale at that level. Um, so I just, I started looking everywhere. I looked earth, drinking water, and I even like went into Masaru Emoto's research of how water can 
be structured and mole molecules can be structured and how molecules can be structured to um, so that they are really kind of like repellent to pollutants. It's, it's such an amazing um, journey I've been on uh, looking in all of these different places for what dark water could be. And I think I found dark water in every area now it's just kind of, um, I put together this organization and then the Citizen Science Project put together this rallying cry to just get our, get our backyards cleaned up and to start thinking beyond our, our own selves in a selfish way where our materials and our resources are, are given value for more than what we can extract from them. And then the value that we place on on our relationships with each other are improved. It, they're more meaningful. And then beyond that, we have a better relationship with the natural world around us to where other things like the Sawita Peaks, who, if you think about, I guess, I guess it would be somewhere in Blackfoot physics where it would be a, like a relationship of symbiosis or a reciprocal relationship and the Suita beaks and the animals and the plants, they all remember a relationship with us back. I think, I think they remember it with all humans, but it's not so long ago in Blackfoot history, right? And this relationship was like a symbiotic relationship, but Western science hasn't gotten this far yet. Um, to understand that our actions definitely do impact in ways that we haven't even begun to fathom yet. Um, just like how uh, there was another grandmother, her name's grandmother, uh, she passed. She's an Ojibwe grandmother, Josephine Mandaman. She's the um, founder and walker of the Mother Earth Water Walk. And she had a dream very similar to mine and it made me feel at that point when our careers and our paths crossed I had felt that I was very much in in the right spot um doing the right thing for the Suita Peaks every now and then I look for a sign like I don't because it's a, it's a it's a it's a puzzle really like I don't know if I'm on the right path and sometimes I'll ask for a sign and um then Josephine Mandaman or someone along the lines of her will call call me up and say, "Hey, we're doing a walk and we need this and this and this. Can you host us?" and and then everything seems to already be ready. <laughs> so it was like meant to be, right? And I love I love when things fall together like that. But they what had happened is her dream. She was told something very similar. She was told that the people are forgetting the sweet beaks. And I don't know what they called themselves in her dream or what, what her people calls them. Um, but her dream was a warning that you can't forget the water people. You can't forget the water beings or the water itself. And traditionally, most tribes across the US and, and most indigenous people around the world um, a lot of people have water ceremonies. Like, I mean, you think of even Catholic church has a water um, ceremony or a blessing. And um, so her dream was saying, you guys are forgetting to acknowledge us and we're losing our power. And so that feeds into my dream and relates to it in that we have to remember who we're interacting with. When we go to a body of water, there's much more power there than we're seeing with our our human eyes and when we forget to acknowledge that it's not powerful right we just you lose power of something that's not acknowledged like the powerful book we once read in our youth we put it up on the shelf and we've never opened it again it definitely loses power it loses its story and it loses its significance in our life of of the impact that it made and so I always ask people to um, one join my citizen science project, be a be a land and water guardian, a sweet beat guardian. Uh, two, um, schedule cultural humility classes with our organization because those those classes start the internal reflection about figuring out 
kind of where we were corrupted in our adolescence um, because we were all born really nice, pure, kind people, right? And then we were corrupted at some point along the way, which brought biases and discrimination and prejudice. And, and so we, we explore in this class going back to our more innocent selves and trying to, um, trying to see and create the world from that perspective. And, um, and then we move into an institution and an organization. So once we gain this critical self-critique, we call it critical self-critique, lifelong learning, internal self-reflection, and we figure out where our biases, our snap judgments, our, our, where our perspective was skewed to not being something that is just for other people or, or the earth around us. And then we move that into institutional and organizational accountability. So that's really fun, fun stuff right there. Um, and then finally, the most important and probably free, free thing that I urge people to do and what grandmother um, Mandaman was asking people to do was to acknowledge the water. And um, I was saying <laughs> that before I, before I fell off track there, that most tribes and most nations, indigenous people have a water acknowledgement ceremony. And so when we cross a river, we'll acknowledge that river by name if possible, um, maybe put out an offering, which is, uh, it's local to everything here. It's tobacco and down in the South it's corn pollen. I think in your area, actually the Haudenosaunee do corn pollen as well. Um, but we put out an offering to those spirits and to those beings to, to say, uh, we see you, we know you're here. Thank you for, for really like bringing peace and right there it can be individualized your thanks for whatever bringing peace um i know when i thank water um it's one of the i usually am um, i trailed uh trail jog along this uh river and usually if i'm thinking too hard or something is really bothering me i'll ask the river to take that from me and just let it flow on out to the ocean and be cleansed and um to for 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 the river to grace me with um that gift of flow right like let my hard thoughts come in and let them go just as easily as they come in and let life be like that too because because i'm trying <laughs> i'm trying and um and thank you and thank you for blessing me and thank you for watching out for me and there's just so many things that water does for us as people that we can just very simply and quietly have a conversation with it. And that what that conversation does on a spiritual, uh, physical level is if you believe in Suita Peaks or spirits, um, what that does, that acknowledgement and that transmission of energy, it strengthens those spirits, right? You, what you speak of is strengthened. And um, if you believe in physics and energy, then it's, you've transmitted energy to water, um, which one water molecule has 440,000 information panels. And this is amazing, uh, amazing research by um, Dr. Chamberlain. Oh, I always get his name wrong. It's like Dr. Chamberlain from the University of Great Britain um, found out that one water molecule has about 440,000 information panels. And if we had a machine to read a water molecule, our mind would be blown. I don't think we can fathom that because water is said, or he, he, um, he thinks that everything a water molecule comes in contact with they gather, exchange information, and then move on. And so everything a water molecule touches, it remembers. And so if we look at one water molecule, it would completely solve like origins of the universe, um, uh, history of the world, like where the dinosaurs, what happened? Like, did they all go at once? Did they all go like, was it piecemeal? Like, I think our little, I call our tiny human brains would be blown if we actually had that machine to read that um but just that acknowledgement of water and that energy that transmission i think becomes a reciprocal uh, relationship that has been forgotten by people that that needs to be reestablished. 
Well, you, you just gave me chills when you were talking about talking to the water and asking the water for help. Uh, that's uh, very powerful. And uh, I can relate to that. And I think a lot of uh, the people that uh, follow us uh, can relate to that as well. Um, wonderful, wonderful stories. Um, and and uh, it, I, I, just to backtrack for a moment, um, I wanted to make sure our listeners understood that when you went out on that dock, as I, as I recall, you had actually been uh, reading under a blanket in your, your tent at camp or your cabin at camp, and you went down to the water at a, around 11 p.m., and and you went out there so you know for a nine-year-old that that's very brave um but very cool and uh it it almost now that i'm saying the words it feels like the water was probably calling you that night and then you had that incredible experience that, that changed your life yeah and the dream well the dream happened the winter of after the camp um but when i was at camp and i don't like to talk about this because it's a bad camper and I run camps now and I would not like any of my kids to be doing this but um yeah I I was kind of independent on the reservation I grew up on we we kind of we just I just ran around <laughs> the mountains I always had a, a small pack of dogs with me so I was never scared my dogs would do anything for me um and so I was never scared one of my best memories is is hiking past little uh, little heartbeat hill towards heartbeat mountain and back there is some lakes and this is grizz country for some reason i had no no fear of dying <laughs> at that point um i don't know if my mom knew exactly where i was going she knew i was around and i would be home before dark but i was taking um now that i think about it a four mile five mile hike back into the Rocky Mountains with just four dogs and a little girl and maybe some food in my backpack. Um, and I'd sleep on logs to take a break. And um, my dogs would sleep around me. And every now and then they would, two of them would take off and come back later, or catch up later. And I always considered that, oh, well, they're going to chase whatever's tracking me or some, they're chasing the boogeyman away. And um, so I, I didn't have the fear of being by myself at the time. It was normal to be solo and I was kind of a loner. Um, I have best friends, but I didn't have like, I'm not a, I'm not a large group of friends people. I'm a, uh, I still have my best friends from kindergarten, same ones. Um, and so I'm kind of a loner with just my small, my small friends, a uh, small circle of friends, but, um, that night the lights out was right around 8 30 which is really lame um especially for a, a nine-year-old girl who stays up until 3 30 in the morning reading um and so I couldn't do that because we were in bunk bed status uh and then right around 11 o'clock I would go sneak out and down by the shore there's lots of rocks it's really pretty and you can just make a little fire and it's far enough away that I wasn't scared that I would start a fire, right? There's no, nothing scary around. And I guess I just didn't have the fear um, growing up in a sweat lodge lifestyle. When we heat rocks up, uh, it's kind of like a bonfire almost. <laughs> and so um, I get, my, my upbringing was different than other nine years. It was, it was outdoorsy, kind of roughing it status. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I can relate to your comment about maybe not the, your favorite camp, but but uh, as I experienced that as well, and very different from what you're talking about. But uh, anyway, um, and, and somewhere along the way, you also had around this age, I think you had the experience with the beaver pups. You you organized a, and you also organized a, st a stream cleanup. What about, how did that all come about? Yeah, so um, it wasn't an official stream cleanup. It was as official as a, an, a 10 or 11 year old can make it. Um, but the same Whitetail Creek behind my house, um, every spring, all of the students from the school would come pull things out. We'd do community cleanup day and they'd break all the classes up. 
Um, and so that started happening and that took a lot of weight off of how I would get this one stream clean, especially as a little girl, I wasn't, um, I didn't hit a growth spurt until like 10th grade. So I was always the smallest in my class and I was always, um, very lightweight essentially. And so I couldn't, uh, do the work I needed. So I asked my mom to make some fry bread <laughs> and I got my little brother's friends who were, um, even though they were half my age and half my size, they were really strong, a really strong group of little boys and they would do anything for fry bread and, and a sandwich. And, um, so I just said, I, I got fry bread. I got sandwiches. I just need these, these tires and this plastic. We pulled car hoods. Um, it was really amazing. Uh, it was Whitetail Creek in Hartview, Montana, to get that cleaned up. Did that answer? Did I answer? Yeah, yeah. But I was curious about the, the uh, also the, the story about the beaver pups. That's right. Okay, so right there along Whitetail Creek. Um, sorry, I get lost in the memories too, and then I forget because another great memory comes along. But the uh, the stream Whitetail Creek kind of meanders. Um, through these plains area, we've got cottonwood growth and willows and uh, the beavers had started, had always tried to like move into this area, which was a concern because there's car hoods, trash, the wind blows pretty regularly, right around 30 miles, 60 miles an hour. And so any new house construction, if it's not tied down or nailed down, it's blowing away and it blows to this creek. And so I'm pulling out styrofoam boards and and I did that for a couple of years. And then my best friend, Eric, and I were, were looking for a swim spot along this area. And if he might not have been with me. It was, it was maybe before that because we had, we had not discovered the hole yet. We, so what, what it was, is and I had no idea these existed, is it was a mud bog, which is like a playground for little beavers. Um, and so on the edge of the beaver pond, you'll get these really muddy areas. And then that's where the beaver pups like to play. And I had been walking down the stream one day and I heard splashes and you kind of want to pause and hide behind a bush if you hear splashes, because you don't know if it's going to be a bear or what it could be another human. Um, but I, I paused and I looked and what I saw was in an area that we had did some significant cleaning. There were these little beaver pups that were climbing up the side of the cut bank and then sliding down and this muddy slide that they had made and then climbing up and sliding down, climbing up and sliding down and they would roll and they would do this little chitter that sounds like laughter. And I'm like, Oh my God, that, that makes it worth it. And then I went to get my best friend <laughs> and, and I said, there's this great mudslide in this pool. And um, so me and him started playing in it and uh, we had the time of our lives and we must've been so loud that another friend had walked down to the Creek and said, what are you guys doing? And at that point we're completely, there's like not a part of our body that isn't mud. And it's just the funnest thing ever. Um, I think the beavers, had taken out big sticks and rocks. This was just a, I don't remember cleaning the mud this well, um, but it was like this really fun, goopy mud. You step into it, you sink down, you can't get out. There's a big, when you put your foot out. And, and then the slide was fun too. It was like a six foot mud slide for an 11 year old is, is a really cool find in the wilderness and, or in your backyard. Uh, so I had really loved that. And that was one of the moments where I felt like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to clean water slides for beaver pups. And mm -hmm. <laughs> as a kid, that really like resonated with me. And I, at that time, I had no idea that I belonged um, or that I was descended from uh, society leaders and, and chiefs who took care of beaver bundles. And so my family for generations had been tasked with the with the responsibility to essentially take care of these bundles, the beaver bundles, Xistaki, we call them. Xistaki is how we say beaver. And, and how, how everything in my life just seemed to push me in this direction from my name to the dream to 
the experiences. I just feel like it's something bigger than me. Sure. So earlier you mentioned um, <clears throat> your citizen science project projects and uh, also uh, training cultural humility and so on. Um, when you say that, are, are those uh, projects within your Indigenous Vision nonprofit? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so we have five um, main projects. It's the Environmental and Social Justice Mapping Project, which I spoke a lot about at the at the Fairfield um, Ethics Panel. That is evolved in a into a citizen science project because it's so massive and huge. I can't possibly do it as one person or one organization. And really, the goal is I I just want to increase scientific literacy and increase that relationship or the chance of a relationship happening between people and the earth. Um, and then we have the uh, cultural humility training program and that's actually our fee for service. That's how we keep the lights on here um, at Indigenous Vision. Uh, we do institutional um, organizational trainings, which are, I think are like the best form of team building because it's a safe place uh, in these conversations. We, we really try to hammer down on the confidentiality. And if you think about working with a coworker and doing the trust building exercise where you have to cross your hands on your chest and fall backwards <laughs> and they might catch you. Um, and then think about this other situation in our culture humility class where you really essentially become emotionally vulnerable and you talk about some of your first hardest experiences that you can remember um, and how that might have uh, skewed your journey and what we're doing today and how it can help us learn prejudicism and racism uh, and how everything can be undone. So everything we've learned can be undone, but mostly these classes help with um, having compassion towards ourselves and others in the learning process. Because if we get scared out of learning, then we're stuck in what we know. And, um, and, and I think when we all learn something new, we're kind of in a state of shock a little bit and it creates fear. And so we don't, it immobilizes us. Um, and so we kind of enter into these hard conversations of religion, politics, and um, race exactly what we're not supposed to talk about to have a good conversation right uh, and we talk about all of that in a safe place and we just really try to focus on that we are in a learning process together and this we we all want to be in it because we all want a better world and this is how it starts um we have youth empowerment programs so we have a life spa camp which is not happening this year we're doing care packages instead for um Indigenous girls age 11 to 17 in the foster care system. Uh, we have an emergency water filter program. So exciting um, thing. We just got $8,000, which is our wholesale price, uh, nonprofit price of emergency water filters. They're Berkey systems. And so far as I know, and I would love for any of your listeners, if they know better, to please contact me. So far as I know, these are the best filters on the market. Um, they're gravity fed, so they can be used offline um, and they can do uh, radionuclides. They can um, do organic matter, uh, contaminants, even ph pharmaceuticals. And so, uh, and they're the only systems that I know have a scientific test on them. And I just did my red dye test yesterday on my, my travel Berkey and, and the water was crystal clear on the bottom. So I was super happy about my, my dye test. And um, those are for, for people who are experiencing, um, well, they were inspired by First Nation communities in Canada and here in the US who have been on boil water orders for nearly 30 years. I um, just turned 37 and uh, I, I realized that all of these communities that have boil water orders and contaminated water and mining contaminated water, it was almost intentional. It's like a, it's, <laughs> this goes into the conspiracy theory side is that these are intentionally uh, 
displaced industries because the resources extracted from that land are more important than people staying there, maintaining a cultural way that nobody knows anything about. Um, so I think it's very intentional, maybe unconsciously intentional, um, that these are, that, that America and Canada are still trying to figure out their Indian problem. <laughs> and I think that uh, the status quo dirty water for 30 years is one of the ways that they're doing, doing that, especially when um, these are supposed to be treaty rights, clean water education, um, you know, we stopped warring on the settlers. We we became nice, <laughs> and then the 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 trade was supposed to be education, and our our reservations. Um, so we have let's see, emergency water filters, citizen science program, cultural humility, um, youth empowerment, and I'm missing one. Please see my website. <laughs> We have a small team of people, so it's um, we do as much as we can, and and we we try to do all of these programs uh, with the idea, knowing that they are all related and they all build on each other. So when we do a youth empowerment camp or activity, we're using the justice map and we're using the social map to really talk about historical trauma that their community might be facing, and then how that might um, relate to environmental relationships and how industry is targeting and treating. Uh, reservation lands and traditional territories. Would the fifth one possibly be the self-defense? Yes. Well, that's yes. that's in our youth. That's our in our youth empowerment um, that okay. falls under that. But yes, uh, self-defense is part of our response to um, missing, murdered Indigenous people. Now, with uh, the cultural humility, you're talking about that keeps the lights on. Who would be the uh, are those corporate clients or who would be your customers? Yes. So right now our customers are um, social worker associations. So regional social worker associations, national a social worker association. Uh, we do a lot of university employees, college employees. Uh, we work closely with um, like the University of Phoenix diversity, equity, and inclusion offices. So a lot of people, I went to, like for a couple of um, community dialogues in a row, it was all managers and directors of some diversity inclusion, either for the city of Scottsdale or the university or a college. And it kind of became like a support group <laughs> for, for these professionals to just kind of like fathom what's going on in our jobs and especially now with how much hate is happening between people um so we get a lot of i'm i'm really surprised actually at the the clientele that we've um gained over the last couple of years and the level that they work out so we we had some united nations people come in a couple of trainings ago. So they're all at a caliber that just has exceeded my expectations. And I'm so happy that we've got these high level people coming in because cultural humility works as a alternative to cultural competency, which can have some dangers to it. If you go into any situation, um, especially cross-cultural situations, which can happen with anyone. It can happen with your own family, right? Members of your own family have a totally different culture than you. Um, but you go in with these preconceived notions that you have an idea of where well, you can make an assumption that you know something is, is C because of A and B. Um, but that's, those assumptions almost always get us in trouble sometimes. And so they're not safe. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the examples that we use in class is that a doctor had learned in his competency class that women of color, specifically Hispanic women, tend to overindulge in pain. And so they'll wince, they'll wiggle, they'll moan more for a pain that's not as bad as what white people would experience. And so they opted in this one scenario between the nurse who um, had gone to competency class and the doctor who had gone to co uh, competency class, they had agreed that they had both learned this and so that they did not give the woman they were treating painkillers in her pain <laughs> because mm. of this competency idea that brown people tend to over-dramatize their pain. I don't know if that's a word, dramatize. <laughs> but um, 
yeah, there's so, so there's some dangers in competency that we want to move away from. Um, let's see if I've got that all. Trainings. So yeah, most of our trainings are with professionals um, in, in a fields that are way beyond uh, my own field, which is very surprising. Um, and I'm still blown away by it. So Suta, you had mentioned if uh, listeners wanted to be in contact with you, how would they do that? And can you also tell us again, the name of your website? Yes. So if you want to contact me or have any questions, I love answering questions. That's why I started an educational nonprofit. Uh, contact me at www.indigenousvision.org. Um, you can email me directly at info at indigenousvision.org or sutacl at indigenousvision.org. And um, that can be for questions about anything, um, trainings, uh, land acknowledgements, program um, issues. So some of the fun things that are happening from, excuse me, I'm, it's getting uh, Montana warm out here. Uh, they, uh, some of the fun things that we can do with cultural humility trainings and classes is, so what it does is it takes the leadership of an organization and then the frontline employees of the organization and everybody in between, and it gets them all on the same page. We all come into the, the training at the same level. Uh, we all learn from each other. There's no bosses. There's no employees. I mean, naturally there is, but we try to take that out of the, the playing field for a while and just focus on our, our feelings and our intentions and, and mostly like the mission and vision of the organization of what they would like to achieve. We can help organizations extract what's causing cultural problems, um, almost in white paper terms, and then they can work that into their action statements and their principles, or they can reformulate their vision uh, to incorporate more um, equity and, and liberation for the people of color that they may serve. Okay. Now, I know it's getting warm there, and I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I, I, I did want to just make sure we covered a couple other things here. You talked about the Citizen Science Project, and, and you mentioned that you talked extensively about the mapping at, at the uh, presentation I saw. Um, can you just, uh, it, it seemed that uh, what I heard, a lot of the mapping was relating to injustices is that still the uh the strategy absolutely can you tell us tell us more about the uh, the mapping uh project yes so um it started as a solo project and this was the one that i was going to take uh into phd training it was just uh too big you literally start looking for dark water and it's everywhere <laughs> and so i can't map this by myself. I can't tally it by myself. So I need help of other scientists, other water lovers, other just concerned people who want their grandchildren to live to help start tracking all of this down. And a lot of it I source from um, USGS data, EPA data, um, uh, ESRI data. Uh, I do a lot of scientific data combing and I will pull those CSV forms out and then I plot those points and then I double check those points. Um, and then I started adding in social because I realized like if you're looking for dark water and we are water bodies ourselves, it could be something that's manifesting within us as a population of people primarily made of water and it, the problem could be with us in our relationship and our acknowledgement or our ignorance of what's happening around us and so we did the social justice aspect too because we can't take indigenous people out of the ecosystem we can't take people out of the ecosystem and right now as scientists the way we manage things is people are exclusive and everything we look at in in the natural world is categorized kind of and looked at exclusively without um, extenuating circumstances being factored in about how those potential impacts might be changing or, or guiding something happening. And so it's really important to 
to to make sure that we have that holistic view and that people all over the world are taking whatever they're concerned about. So it could be a dark water concern that I haven't even thought of that you might know of yourself, Richard, because I think you, you know a lot. Yeah. I'd like to interview you because, <laughs> um, and just talk about some of your experiences that you've, you've come across if other people are telling stories like me too, because that would be a really interesting thing to hear in just all of the issues that are, that people are coming across and that they're individually concerned about. I think that this is a place for them to be, be, um, I guess, brought to light. No, no pun intended or pun intended mm-hmm. let's pun intend that mm-hmm. one um because uh i mean we the epa will just do uh soil land and water and it's very exclusive with what they they do um if you think about in the west western united states past the um the mississippi river there's 660,000 abandoned mines not even active, just abandoned. Um, and a lot of these abandoned mines are unmarked. Uh, and so we think about how many hikers go missing, how many people go missing. Um, and these are just sometimes unmarked holes that go a mile down into the earth. Sometimes they can be 35 feet across. Um, so a whole four-wheeler can just, no trace, nothing. Um, so I'm very concerned about those lately. My concern and what I'm looking into right now is pharmaceutical uptake into medicinal plants um, and wastewater treatment um, removal of pharmaceuticals, um, presence of pharmaceuticals in the environment, and also um, chronic wasting disease and animal diseases that uh, there's, I can't remember the name of the, it's like a act. It's not Addison's, it's like a Andio, Andio nose virus. It's another ungulate disease. And um, what what's happening, especially here, because what we're doing while we're mapping places out is I'm also doing my summer harvest. So we're getting, we're re-upping on all of our sage and cedar and mint and sweet grass for this, the winter time. And what I did this time is I actually looked at my map to see where the abandoned mines are so that my son doesn't play in mine drainage. Um, And I'm looking where uh, sites of chronic wasting disease has been documented by Fish and Wildlife. I'm going to the only open spot in Montana where it has not been documented this past hunting season and trying to pick my sage there because the protein of chronic wasting disease stays active in the soil and on plants for up to two years. And we have no idea what that protein, that chronic wasting disease protein will do in a human mind and body. It's just unknown right now. Um, So those are the two things that I'm really concerned about right now. But I would love to have other people and their concerns fill out a map profile. You can go to my website. It's um, indigenousvision.org forward slash submit report. Um, and fill that out. It's a very clunky, archaic machine right now. We take volunteers. If you have, if there, if you have a better way to get that done, we welcome. Like the only way we've done anything so far is through partnership and collaboration, and we're really appreciative of of everybody helping. Um, but we do have a great opportunity coming up in the fall, where I think our whole website and our our map is going to be revamped by a, a group of professionals that I was lucky enough to be selected for this volunteer. It's a professional, professional volunteer. So people, professionals like you, um, if, if you and I are lucky enough to work at this great organization, they actually let their employees cut out for six months and do whatever they want in the world with these designated organizations. And they still get paid from their parent company. And so I'll have a group of a volunteer director and a volunteer group of employees that are going to help look at the map and really get it formulated and tighten up. What we want is quantitative questions, submittal form, uh, so that we can really start pulling those hard stats. Because right now, 
Um, it's just me collecting and analyzing data. And if we can get to the point where we have either volunteers or I can pay um, data scientists to look at the look at the data, I'm pretty sure it's going to be somewhere along the lines of every American lives within five miles of something that would cause major damage to their neurological or immune well-being like um i think with the unprecedented immune system issues that we're seeing in society today it's environmental it's all environmental the chronic wasting disease the ungulate viruses uh, brucellosis all of that is is in balance in our environment i could go on richard <laughs> yeah yeah well it's uh it, it's it, it, it you're reminding me though of of your the presentation I saw where the amount of data uh, that you have been collecting and working through e even a year ago was, was massive and, and it's, it's just a massive project. So I'm glad that it's continuing and that you're getting some help. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll have some people that can uh, participate in one way or another. I already have uh, one person in mind perhaps for you. Um, but again, since it's getting warm there, I guess, uh, uh, I, I have one question and I wanted to be sure to also, before we close, ask if there was anything else you wanted to talk about, but let me tee this up if I could. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that a big part of your message, uh, is the value of traditional ecological knowledge. And you believe that land and indigenous people and of course, water are inextricably linked and sustainable management must include indigenous people for, for a variety of reasons. Um, is that a fair statement? Can you, can you comment on that? Yes. Um, we are the health of our environment and, um, I saw a great sign road sign, because one of the things we do is go along the roads and assess the narrative of roadside educational placards. Most of them were put up in the 1920s, so they're racially aggressive language. Um, we don't want these signs like removed or taken down. We just want the correct or uh, alternative perspective set next to it so that people can have that. They have both perspectives of what happened in history. And, and I think getting to that statement is we will never know uh, the ability and the power that we have as people um, because everything is so fractionated. We're, we're working on 10% of our brains. Why? Why? <laughs> That's not fair. We got, what, what else is there? Um, more to this world that I think that we can fathom right now, but we can get to that point by deepening the connection and, and quitting um, kind of like toxic superficial relationships that we have um, in this consumer um, climate that we're in uh, because it literally is that it's consuming everything. I mean, whole forests are gone for toilet paper <laughs> mm. <laughs> and we're not thinking about we're not thinking about the animals that relied on that. We're not thinking about the medicines that could come from that. We're literally prioritizing toilet paper over potential medicines, cures, habitat, people. Um, I think it's time that that in this world that we're living in, I I know it's I know it's um, isolated, but I think it's time we stop living like that. It's it's. Um, with all of this call out and cancel culture, let's just cancel things that don't serve us. And, and I know this would get a lot of people super mad, um, but I was sitting on the edge of the lake last night, watching the sun go down and watching a pelican float by. And I thought for a second, he was asleep until he moved his head. Cause I thought he was just going with the drift. But um, one of the things that if we're going to get serious as a society and protecting ourselves and protecting our drinking water, everybody knows drinking water is finite. Why are we, why are we allowing gas powered machines to go in our reservoirs? How much 
millions of dollars do our water treatment plants spend to remove that gasoline and those heavy metals? Uh, would that save us a billion dollars right there? Just limiting our recreation? I, I don't know. It's not going to be a popular thing. And a lot of the changes that we need to make as people are hard. Um, but I think it'll ultimately lead to a better life and a healthier life where we're living um, without much pain into our 90s and hundreds again and not our 70s. <laughs> That's too young. Yeah. Well, well said. Uh, it, it's, it's terrifying. Um, but uh, we, we, we better wake up because uh, uh, water is the source of life and uh, it's going to become more and more essential. Uh, but unless we do something, it's going to become more and more contaminated and dangerous to us uh, and uh, unknowingly in some cases. So, Suta, anything else you'd like to share? I really I appreciate you, Richard, for um, having this platform and letting me talk. And I appreciate all of your listeners for uh, listening and being interested, concerned people. Um, I would love to work with you and hear more about your work and follow your podcast now um, and continue this conversation if there's anything in the future that comes up that we could have a conversation around. That's right. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. We hope you liked today's Blue Earth podcast. Thanks for listening. Wherever you're hearing us, please rate and review the show and check out our website for upcoming podcasts, blogs, and more. We're now releasing the Blue Earth podcast on a weekly basis. So until next time, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thanks. Thanks.